Good morning. This morning your passage comes from John 10, 22 through 42. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple, in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him, and Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent to the world, you are blaspheming, because I said, I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am the Father. Again they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained, and many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed him there. Good morning. I'm struggling. i got to be honest. This microphone is throwing me through a loop here. This passage in John 10 records yet another. I, I, I'm at some point I'm going to count them because it's obviously a, a significant way in which John means us to understand who Jesus is and what that means. But it's another encounter between Jesus and the Jews. In many of the previous encounters, you may remember Jesus would say something and the Jews would respond to it or Jesus would do something and then the Jews would respond to it. But In this encounter, it's a little different. He was merely walking around in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon when the Jews confronted him with a question of their own. And the result, once again, they was walking around, they came up to him. The result was a back and forth between Jesus and the Jews about what is right to believe about God and themselves and Jesus himself and also what a life lived in light of those things means. For his part, Jesus explained why the Jews should have believed in him, why they didn't believe in him, and what was at stake either way. And for their part, which we'll see next week, the Jews felt that Jesus gave them exactly what they had come for to condemn him, something to condemn him with. And so they tried to arrest and kill him. In all of this, we learn a couple of new things about Jesus' nature. John shines a light on a couple of new aspects of Jesus' nature. We haven't seen, at least not very clearly in the gospel, and reminds us of several others he's already helped us to see. And on a practical level, we're faced once again with the same question that those to whom Jesus was speaking in this passage initially 
a question they were confronted with as well. And I, I want this to ring through our minds as I preach through this passage. Do you believe in Jesus or not? And all that that means. Do you believe in him or not? Do you accept his claim to be the Christ and all of its implications for your life and for this world, or don't you? Will you follow Jesus wherever he leads and wherever it costs, or will you forsake him as many of the Jews in this passage did? The main point of all of this passage, at least the portion I'm preaching on, is that Jesus had said and done more than enough to convince anyone with eyes to see and ears to hear that he is, in fact, the Christ and one with the Father. What's more, all who turn to him with God's help, we see here, will be rescued from sin and death and be given blessings beyond measure. Let's pray that God would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and clarified vision and amplified hearing to get all that there is that he means us to from this passage. Let's pray. God, this is another gift to your people. This is another remarkable description of who Jesus really is and what it means for us and for the world. Please open our eyes or open them further. Open our ears or give us better hearing this morning that we might understand and live more fully in light of this for your glory and for our good and for the good of the whole world. I pray that that would be the case and more. I pray that you would accomplish all that you purposed this morning and that we would give you glory for it and our praise and in our obedience. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The opening line of our passage, you can see it, sets sets the stage for the passage. If you remember, if you have your Bibles and look back, John, his gospel, chapters 7 through 9, the setting is the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. John 10, 1 through 21 is probably shortly after the Feast of Booths. And then he tells us plainly that this particular encounter took place during the Feast of Dedication. Anybody know the other name for that? It's Hanukkah. The Feast of Booths was late September or up to mid-October, depending upon the calendar year. And then the Feast of Dedication was about two months later, which is winter, as John says, but late November or early December. So the, the events described here take place roughly two months after the events of chapters 7 through 9. Well, the main literary role of John's reference to the feast is simply to establish the timeline in Jesus' life and ministry. This theological reason is much more important. That is to help us to see that Jesus fulfills this feast also. What, what then is the Feast of Dedication? What, what is Hanukkah and what does it mean that Jesus fulfills it? I, I found a, a really, what I think, a really helpful description. Let me read it to you. The Feast of Dedication is not, this is key, it's not one of the feasts prescribed by the Mosaic Law. It celebrates an event that took place in intertestamental times. That means after the Old Testament finished, concluded in Malachi, and before the New Testament began. So it took, it celebrates an event that took place in between the Testaments. Following the victories of Alexander the Great in the 4th century BC, 400 years before Jesus, Greek culture and language, kids, I bet some of you have learned what that's called. 
uh, Hellenization, they were introduced to the, to the sub- subjugated nations, including Judea. And so in other words, when Alexander the Great took over, uh, he brought Greek language and culture to all the conquered peoples, including the southern tribes of Israel. After the death of Alexander, this policy continued through several different nations and rulers for several hundred years. Eventually, a a Syrian leader, Antiochus IV, went a step too far for the Jews to take. He attempted to implement laws which meant that practices such as Sabbath, observance, and circumcision were prohibited, and the books of the law were to be burnt. The Jews finally had enough. In 167 BC then, the temple of Jerusalem was desecrated by offering swine's flesh on the altar. And the Jewish people would have been required to offer sacrifices to pagan deities. Again, at this point, they had had enough. This led pious Jews to revolt against Antiochus, a revolt led by Judas Maccabeus, which What a cool name. It means the hammer. (laughs) If you are looking for a nickname for me, (laughs) I'm open to that one. (laughs) They fled to the mountains, though. The the Jews, led by Judas Maccabeus, fled to the mountains from whence they conducted, I'm still quoting one of the commentators, from whence they conducted guerrilla warfare. Their campaign was was crowned with success, and in 164 B.C., the temple was rededicated to the worship of Yahweh. The Feast of Dedication is modeled after the Feast of Tabernacles, which was celebrated just before it, as I just said. It lasted for eight days. It involved the carrying of palm fronds and beautiful branches and eventually included the singing of the Hillel, which is Psalms 113 to 118. And according to the Talmud, lamps were lit in the people's homes. That's why it's sometimes called the Festival of Lights as well. Lamps were lit in people's homes as well as in the temple. And so I hope as you heard that, you could hear the three main elements of the feast. And I hope to briefly explain how Jesus is the fulfillment of them all. The three main elements are a hero, a deliverance, and a symbol. Judas Maccabeus was the hero. Successful guerrilla warfare was the means of their deliverance and the recapturing of the temple. And light was the symbol of remembrance of these things. Jesus, of course, is the true hero. Grace, get this. Every godly leader and every successful victory, or every, I'm sorry, every significant victory of the Jews, of the people of God, was a pointer to the greater leadership and victory of Jesus. Jesus is our deliverance in his blood, as Matt said just a little bit ago, and he is the temple. He would lay his life down, his body, the true temple, so that none might be lost and that God might dwell with all and all with God. And Jesus is the light of the world, the true light that overcomes darkness. Well, the realization of this, and John is intending to help us see this, the realization of this ought to do two main things for us. And we'll see it again as we move through the passage, both of these. First, grace, it ought to stir us to worship. Jesus' glory is such that all history really is his story. What, I, what do I mean by that? You've probably heard some version of that saying before. But what that means in reality is that God the Father, in his infinite wisdom and goodness, was driving all things since the beginning of creation to his son, Jesus. 
if we're able even to begin to get our heads around the fact that every earthly victory experienced by God's people, as staggering and freeing as they were all by themselves, to be oppressed and crushed and enslaved by pagan nations, and then to find victory from that so that you're no longer enslaved and, and oppressed all by itself, it's a remarkable victory. But if we can get our heads around the fact, just even begin to, that every earthly victory experienced by God's people, they were all mere signposts pointing to the immeasurably superior victory that Jesus would win for his people. Then and only then can we begin to see the rightness and eternally satisfying goodness of worshiping King Jesus. So it's in this kind of thing, watching all history funnel to Jesus and point to Jesus that our worship begins to take its proper place. But the second thing is this. Okay, I, I'm going to ask, I don't do this all that often, but kids, I need your, I need your help a little bit here. If you, if the, if the room was dark, you could do the first thing, but if, if you close your eyes in a dark room, it seems like the darkness is almost complete. So we're not in that, but, but kids, go ahead and close your eyes. And you can still see a little bit of light, whether you realize it or not, you can. And you can tell that. Now go ahead, keep your eyes closed, and then put your hands over your eyes. And it gets a little darker still, doesn't it? And so when the room is already dark and you close your eyes, it seems like the darkness is thorough. If you close your eyes in a room with the lights on, there's usually a little bit of light that still gets through. But what happens if you go outside on a cloudless day, a day with no clouds, Put your face to the sun and close your eyes. It's still fairly bright. A lot more light gets through your eyelids. But here's the point. What's all that have to do with anything? Since Jesus' glory shines infinitely brighter than the brightest star in the sky and all of them combined, we're right to marvel. Get your head around the sinfulness of sin such that it can block that out. Are you with me? If Jesus' glory is what we said it is, imagine the sinfulness of sin that keeps us from being able to see his glory as it is, infinitely brighter than all the stars in the sky combined. John has made a point of showing Jesus at the different feasts of the Jews, in part to show his readers that they all point to Jesus, that he is the fulfillment of them all, and in that, John was only further highlighting. He, he's showing example after example after example of Jesus as the Christ in his glory. And all of that only to further highlight the sinfulness of sin and the folly of the Jews for failing to receive Jesus as the Christ as he stood in front of them. Okay. All of that then is sort of the backdrop and the background for the question that the Jews came up to Jesus and put before him during the Feast of Dedication. On the surface, it seems as if they were simply seeking clarity from Jesus. How long will you keep us in suspense, they said, or they asked. If you are the Christ, tell us plainly, they said. Now, now I, don't, I don't know if you realize this, but that's a really good question and a really reasonable request. Tell us plainly if you're the Christ. Don't, don't keep us in suspense any longer, please. Grace, you know this, but if Jesus is the Christ, that means a whole lot of things. And if he isn't, that means a whole lot of different things. 
What's more, as we've heard over and over, and as you see up on the screen, the main purpose of John's gospel, John tells us, was to convince his readers that Jesus is the Christ. This seems like the right question. Along those lines, Grace, let me urge you again to believe in Jesus as the Christ. Listen to Jesus' words. Look at the things that he did. Consider his glory. Learn from the hardness of the hearts of the Jews and receive him as Christ today. Not partial Christ, but all of Christ and all that it means. This is not, again, I think you know this, but it is not some throwaway 2,000-year-old sect belief. Jesus is the Christ, and that means more than we can possibly imagine, some of which we're going to come to in just a few minutes. And because of that, as the Jews seemingly requested, hearing Jesus speak plainly on the matter seems entirely relevant and thoroughly significant. Are you or not, Jesus? Because if you are, we want to follow you and go with you into victory. But as has often been the case throughout John's Gospel, and in particular in Jesus' encounter with skeptics, things are often different than they first appear. As the rest of the passage makes clear, and we'll see more of that next week, the Jews were not really interested in gaining clarity concerning Jesus' claims. This was not a matter of the sincere children of the promise eager to receive Jesus as the promised Christ. Instead, it was another attempt to get Jesus to publicly admit something with which they could condemn him. Well, Jesus, as always, was aware of this treachery, the insincerity of their question, their desire to trap him. The only question then was how would Jesus respond to it? He knew what they were doing, and so would he take the bait? What would he, what would he do? Well, he... He gave them an answer, and the, the answer had several layers. Let's, let's consider them. Are you the Christ? What did Jesus say in response? His immediate, immediate reply was a, a type of mild rebuke. At the beginning of 25, Jesus, it says, Jesus answered them, I told you. <laughs> I've already, I've already answered this in a certain way. Well, when I first read this passage, as I was preparing to preach on it, I remember thinking, but, but did he? <laughs> did he answer this question already? Had Jesus plainly and explicitly said yes to the question of whether or not he was the Christ to the Jews? He had to the Samaritan woman back in chapter 4, but he, had he ever done so among the Jews? I wanted to look back and take a look at his claims and go back through them, and I found a helpful summary of them. Listen carefully the summary and see if you can hear uh, an explicit Christ claim among them. Here, here are the claims to this point in John that John recorded Jesus having made. He told Nicodemus that he was the son of man who came down from heaven, chapter 3. Following the healing of the lame man at the pool of Bethesda, Jesus told the Jews that the works he did were the works of his father, chapter 5. Jesus told them that God had entrusted all judgment to him and granted him to have life in himself so that he could raise the dead, both of which are divine prerogatives Again, in chapter later in chapter 5. During the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus told the Jews that he knew God and had been sent by God, we saw in chapter 7. He also publicly invited those who were thirsty to come to him and dr- to drink, promising to give them streams 
the streams of living water of which the scriptures spoke. And he told the Jews that before Abraham was born, I am, appropriating for himself the divine name in chapter 8. And he presented himself, which we saw last week, as the good shepherd in chapter 10, identifying himself with God, who in the Old Testament is the shepherd of Israel. So if you're listening at all, you heard some truly spectacular claims. And if you read those claims within the context, you know by the people's responses, they understood them to be spectacular claims. But as you probably also noticed, the short answer to my initial question is in that list, there is no explicit Christ claim. Jesus had not yet explicitly claimed to be the Christ among the Jews. And so, of course, Jesus was not lying when he said, I told you. His point, though, was this. He told them and he had told them enough about who he really was, such that if they didn't believe the things he already said were just as and in some ways bigger, just as much and in some ways bigger than the claim to be the Christ. If they didn't believe what he'd already said, speaking more plainly wasn't the main issue. That wasn't the main problem. What they lacked was not clarity or more information. That was his main point. What's more, Jesus went on to explain that he not only had spoken plainly enough about who he was, but he also acted plainly enough. Again, look at 25. The works I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. He had turned, and I I did go back and pull these out, he had turned water into wine in a very public way and performed, John tells us, many other signs at that same time. Chapter 2, verse 11, 23, and 3, 2. He'd miraculously healed an official's son in 4. He healed a man crippled from birth in 5. He fed 5,000 people with a few loaves of bread and fish in chapter 6. He'd walked on water in chapter 6, and he'd publicly healed a man born blind and Chapter 9. In other words, Jesus was telling the Jews, I say, hey, are you really the Christ? Tell us plainly. I, I've told you everything that you need to know, that if you would believe that, you would receive this. And on top of that, I've done everything you needed to see. Jesus was telling the Jews he'd already done and said more than enough to make it clear who he was, such that doing or saying something even more plainly was not what they really needed. Increased clarity from Jesus was not what was keeping the Jews from believing in him. And so we know all of that is true. We know that that's what Jesus meant by it when we consider the whole of verse 25. Jesus answered them, I told you and you did not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. I've said and done more than enough already, Jesus said, but you still don't believe. Tragically, persistence and unbelief was what marked most of the Jews of Jesus' day. Again, in this, we see another example of the sinfulness of sin. Sin's death and blindness is so complete that the very image of God standing in front of them, talking to them, sharing the mind of God with them, performing the works of God in front of them, on top of being the true fulfillment of the Feast of Dedication, and booths, and Passover was not enough to overcome it. And so before we look at what Jesus said is at stake in their belief or unbelief and rejecting or accepting him as the Christ, consider the fact that once again, embedded in Jesus' answer 
Embedded in Jesus' words is an answer to an implied question. It's a familiar question, but it's implied. Why, in light of who Jesus was and what he said and what he did and his unsurpassed glory, did the Jews still refuse to accept him as the Christ? Or why did they persist in his, in their unbelief, even though he was right there with them? Or why were they unable to just choose to believe in him and overcome sin's grip and blindness? Jesus, Jesus answers that implied, those implied questions. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe, 26, but you do not believe, you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. And in verse 29, we see this. We see that the sheep are those whom the Father has given Jesus. So the explicitly stated reasons for the Jews' persistent unbelief in their sin, and this is far from the first time Jesus gave an answer like this, is twofold. First, Jesus said that they did not believe because they were not among his sheep. And second, Jesus said that they were not among his sheep because they had not been given to him by the Father. There's there's a lot to unpack there, and that's a different sermon for a different day. But I think we need to see two plain things in this passage in this regard. Number one, it is those given to Jesus by the Father who come to Jesus. And two, we are commanded and responsible to believe in Jesus and come to him. They're both true. Let me say those two things, same two things in a different way. Jesus is saying within this, there is a gracious work that God must do if our eyes are to be opened to see the glory of Jesus, and we are responsible to see the glory of Jesus and believe on him and be saved. They're both there. The debates surrounding these two two truths within the church come every time from an attempt to deny one or the other or to put too much or too little emphasis on one or the other. The thing for us to see is that whatever the source of tension we might feel when we come across one or both of those in Scripture, whatever the source of tension is, it's entirely unbiblical. They are continually put right next to each other in the Bible without any explanation or apology. Among the clearest examples for me has always been Philippians 2, 12 and 13. In it, Paul commands his readers to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. It's very much like Jesus telling the Jews here to believe in me. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You are responsible to work out your salvation, Paul says. Do it. Follow God. Your faith hangs in the balance. But without pause and without blush, Paul continues in Romans 13, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. You do it. Because if you don't, you will die in your sin. But if you do do it, it will be according to God's will, work, and pleasure. They're both right there. So grace, both truths. God is sovereign and we are responsible are simply and gloriously and simultaneously true. Any tension is man-made, not God-made. Often they are presented as at odds with one another when people debate the extent of God's sovereignty over salvation. But scripture, again, consistently presents them as inseparably connected and entirely compatible. And so we must consider all of these elements of disbelief, the disbelief of the Jews when we share the gospel with our friends. When you speak to someone this afternoon about the gospel who is not yet a Christian and they look at you like you're a weirdo, which you might be anyway, but when they look at you like the things you're saying are weird anyway, this is that. That is this. We must understand that sin's power to blind is complete. 
that they need God's grace to overcome it, and that they must at the same time choose to believe in Jesus. We can't miss or ignore any of these elements, over or underemphasize any of them, when we evangelize the unbelievers in our lives. And taking them into account properly and practically means at least three things. Number one, it means we need to share the gospel, for no one can be saved apart of it apart from it. Number two, we need to share the gospel in prayer, for we are powerless to save anyone on our own, and even as they are powerless to save themselves on their own. And third, we must entrust the results to God, for his grace is sufficient. So share the gospel, Grace Church, even though, as Jesus says, it is God who opens eyes and ears to see and hear. So what's at stake? In calling the Jews to believe in him, Jesus explained that he had already told them and shown them enough to prove that they should believe in him. He also explained why they couldn't hear or see the things they should. And from there, in verses 27 to 29, Jesus continued his answer to the Jews. Tell us plainly, are you the Christ? Are you the Christ? Tell us plainly. He continued his reply to the Jews by offering a handful of blessings that come with believing in him. So I've told you enough and I've shown you enough and now I'm going to entice you enough that you should believe in me. Six things. Number one, my sheep hear my voice. For whatever reason, my mind first came to music on this. How much money have you spent or how, how much money have you paid or spent and how much time have you given to hearing the voice of your favorite artists? Records, CDs, or CDs, I don't think CDs are even a thing anymore, but records, CDs, streaming services, headphones, concerts, add it all up. How much time and money have you spent to hear the music you like? Likewise, how much time have you spent listening to your favorite podcasts or watching your favorite YouTubers? Likewise, how many, how, how much time and money have you spent to hear the voice of professors in the pursuit of a college degree or authors and buying their books and reading them? The answer, I imagine, collectively among us is a lot. It's not, you know, very precise, but I think the answer is a lot. If we have a category for eagerly making that kind of investment to hear those kinds of voices, how much sweeter of an offer is it that Jesus Christ speaks to his followers and they hear him? I've said many times throughout our time in John, so I won't belabor the point here, but where you find the words of Jesus who is the word of God, you have found something infinitely better than all of the other voices in the universe combined. The only reason it does not seem that way to us at times is that God is not finished undoing the effects of sin on our ears. God's story is the most exciting story, and its power is the greatest power. The problem is with our hearing, not the story. And Jesus is fixing the ears of all who are his sheep. Second. And I know them. Not only does Jesus speak to his followers in such a way that they can hear his words for what they are, but he does so as one who truly knows his followers. I I hate to break it to you, but he is not like the artists, professors, authors, or internet personalities that you listen to. He is, you are a complete stranger to them. They might want you to hear what they put out in a general sense, but they have no idea whether or not you do. They speak at you, not with you. But Jesus knows you personally, and he speaks directly to you if you will receive him as the Christ. He doesn't merely know about you or of you. He knows you. 
He knows your every thoughts and your every, every feeling and every desire and every action. He loves you in them and walks with you through them. That's another part of what's at stake with whether or not we believe in Jesus as the Christ. Eric Lewis told me that this morning that some of the younger kids are, are learning that there are certain promises of God that are for the whole world, but others and the best ones that are just for the children of God. This is one of those. Third, and they follow me. The aim of hearing Jesus' voice and being known by him is that we would follow him. He, hearing and being known are good, but not enough. The abundant life Jesus came to bring involves more than mere knowledge. It involves a changed life. The abundant life Jesus came to bring involves our whole being. It involves what happens inside of us and outside of us. It involves what we think and feel and believe and do. And Jesus doesn't merely tell us the practical implications of hearing and being known by him. He shows us. He lived the life that you and I were made to live. He did the things that you and I were made to do. He said the things that you and I were made to say. To believe that Jesus is the Christ means turning that belief into action. And Jesus modeled that action perfectly for us. Grace, simply, plainly, directly, do what Jesus did in the church and in the world. Jesus helped his followers know what God expected of them. Find a specific way this week. Find a specific way. Write it down on your day planner to help another Christian live, live out in their life. Commandment of God. Pick a particular person and a particular command and help them live it out in their real life. Jesus cared for the poor and the vulnerable. Find someone who is suffering or lacking and meet a practical need that they have this week. Jesus rebuked those who spoke lies about God. In both to the high and powerful and to the low and weak. Engage in an apologetic discussion with the skeptic this week. Write a letter describing what you think would be a godly law for our city or our state to pass to our mayor or a representative. Talk to one of your little children who thinks lying is just fine as long as it gets them what they want in the end and help them to know that God is truth. Engage in an apologetic discussion with the skeptic this week, young or old, high or low, because that's what Jesus did. Jesus constantly prayed to the Father. Make a list of a different person or aspect of godliness for your own life for each day this week. Write it down, even now. Take a second, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, in case you know you, you need that help. And write something down for each day that you are going to pray for this week in a new and unique way. Jesus took the good news to the world. Find a specific way to support one of our missionaries this week, to pray for the lost or to bring the gospel where it isn't. Follow Jesus as a command and as a reward. That's what Jesus offers when we receive him as a Christ. Number four, I give them eternal life. What's at stake in believing that Jesus is the Christ is hearing Jesus' voice, being known by Jesus, and following Jesus all unto eternal life. As we saw earlier in John 10, Jesus came that we might have life and have it to the full. We see here that the abundant life is eternally abundant life. Number five, and they will never perish. And to be clear, this offer of eternal life 
is not one that can be rescinded or lost once it is accepted. To believe in Jesus as the Christ is to be given eternal life eternally. The promise is not that we might never perish, but that we will never perish. And lastly, sixthly, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Not only will God never take it back, the blessings of believing that come to us through believing in Christ, but we will never be able to lose them and no one can take them from us. And to make sure there's no mistaking that, Jesus continued in verse 29, my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them from out of the father's hand. The eternal security of those who truly believe in Jesus as the Christ is guaranteed ultimately by God who is greater than all. Love this. The interplay between our responsible choices and God's sovereign grace, the fact that we need to choose what's right and we're responsible for it, and God's sovereign grace is what helps and enables that, is not merely the means by which we first come to trust in Jesus. It is also the means by which we keep believing and trusting and obeying Jesus. What's at stake in believing in Jesus? Positively, it's the ability to hear his voice, be known by him, follow him, and receive eternal life and security from him. That's awesome. Negatively, what's at stake is explicitly stated elsewhere in John, but only implied here. Those who reject Jesus as the Christ remain condemned, at enmity with God, blind to the things of God, and separated from the pleasure of God. Clearly, there is a lot at stake, and Jesus is wanting those who ask this question to hear them plainly, and you and I. Finally, Jesus responded to the question and request or demanded the Jews not by answering the question that they asked, but by being clear on something just as significant. Rather than say plainly that he is the Christ, Jesus said instead, I and the Father are one. What exactly and precisely this means has been the topic of countless prayers and thoughts and study and writing for 2,000 years. Perhaps the most helpful formulation for this moment right now is the Westminster Shorter Catechism's answer to the question, how many gods are there? Here's the answer. I think some of you might know this. There are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. Jesus declared here something that the Jews couldn't possibly have fathomed previously. Jesus claimed to be one with the Father in power and glory and substance. God is one in essence and three in person, and Jesus is the second person of the Godhead. That the Jews understood at least the main point of that is clear by their response to that, which we'll see next week. And they picked up stones to stone him. And so, Grace Church, consider Jesus' words and believe him. Consider Jesus' works and believe him. Consider what's at stake in belief and disbelief and believe in him. Believe in Jesus and allow that belief to transform your every thought and feeling and action. Believe in Jesus and take that belief to the world, sharing the love of God with the world, calling the world to repentance, sharing with the world what it means to live abundantly in every facet of life and bringing hope for this life and the next to the world. That's what Jesus was after in his ministry and in this passage. And it is what he commissioned you and I to be after as well.